0: taking the publishing industry to task
1: blank space way out slash oj
0: that was a very well told story of rick reardon
1: it's complicated
0: welcome to literary connections we're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected i'm james earl much more likely to choke on a mozzarella ball than i am pancake batter in milan italy
1: (laughs) that was really good um and i'm melissa hansen the one most likely to make you pancake batter that will accidentally kill you <laughs> in San Francisco. All
0: right, this month we are reading Yellow Face by R.F. Kwong, and this is your our normal spoiler alert. We are going to spoil this novel, so read it first, then return to this podcast. Um, or if you don't care about spoilers, then keep on listening.
1: There are a lot of twists and turns in this one.
0: Yeah, which I am about to summarize. Right now.
1: Please do. I'm so excited. I'm going to count you in. Three, two
0: one okay so our narrator is juniper song hayward who is a woman who is working in the publishing industry and has tried to publish some books with very limited success but a former classmate of hers who she was a creative writing major with named athena Liu, has the darling of the of the um, publishing industry and has lots of success and netflix deal and so on and they go to catch up for drinks one night and athena Liu ends up choking on pancake batter and Juniper Hayward, uh, Song Hayward, then takes a manuscript that she was working on and uh, publishes it under her name, but the publishers changed her name to Juniper Song, and so she is writing about a uh, Chinese history, and she is a white lady, and... Uh, it then turns into sort of a ghost story where she thinks that Athena Liu is stalking her. She gets into a bunch of fights on Twitter. And then eventually she's found out as having stolen a novel because she attempts to use another bit of Athena Liu's work. And she's busted by some people who workshopped that story with Athena Liu before that. And now she's writing this memoir and she'll make money anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. I definitely missed some of the beats of it in there. But yeah, tell me what what is important that I missed.
1: Well, I don't know. It's less about the beats in it because I think you're talking a bit about the book meanders in her thoughts and has some repetitive things. It's more so just like each of these stages of her writing each of these different books, some in Athena's voice, some in her own, but always inspired by Athena, gave you a different color into the story. Yeah. And the final thing is who is stalking her? Who is pretending to be Athena and the ghost? And it turns out that there were two different people. And that's where there's like a twist at the end is like, wait. Was it a ghost? Is it the ex-boyfriend? Oh, no, it is the literary assistant of the editor who I got fired because she dared say that I, as a white author, should have a sensitivity reader for my book that I clearly stole about Chinese laborers in World War I.
0: Yeah, I missed the sensitivity reader bit, which is, I think, an important plot point. Because that's like that's Juniper at her most unreasonable. Yeah. Right away in this novel, we're asked to swallow a pretty big suspension of disbelief pill. Where it's like, she wrote it, but it's not in the cloud. It's typewritten. Nobody has ever seen a draft of it. Like, there's no agent who's read it. No editor that's given her feedback. Like, she just wrote it in a black box. And this is like allow us for the entire plot to happen, and that is just a completely unreasonable. like no author at any stage in their career can get away with that kind of behavior. <laughs>
1: I mean, maybe so, didn't Tom Hanks just write a novel? He he writes exclusively on typewriters, right?
0: I'm sure he had Ann Patchett read it
1: at every <laughs> second, and
0: she was probably like, "Tom, go away. I'll <laughs> read it once you
1: <laughs> once it's
0: close to finish. I can't read every paragraph."
1: As you like, take a, a picture with your phone of the typewritten page. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I think there is that part where it's implausible so then you're like oh of course the boyfriend saw her researching this novel because it mm-hmm. it seems like it would have been absolutely ridiculous that she could have done a giant war epic with nobody having yeah. heard of it ever but i think in the author's note at the end the author talks about how a lot of this book is like a rumination on the loneliness of being a writer and how mm-hmm. a solitary act it is and the vulnerability of like sharing it or like how do you create and so I assume it has something to do with all of that. Slash, of course, June thinks the reason that she types everything in typewriter is because Athena is pretentious AF.
0: Right. That that opens up a, a conversation about a lot of things. So obviously the like big source of tension is race. I mean, the, the title of this is Yellow Face and there is that. But and I think that this is a, a part of the story that I think could have been developed a little bit more is that Athena is a rich lady. Like there's a class element to this that gets touched on sometimes where it's like Athena doesn't realize how much stuff costs or she like looks her up and sees how much the private school costs and so on. And so there is this like jealousy that she has, not just that Athena is successful, but it's also there's a class element to it where like Juniper just doesn't have the class privilege that Athena has. And that's like the nuance I'm looking for from a literary fiction Um, That I think like this one skims on the top of but never really goes deep on
1: Yeah, it reminded me of a conversation I one time had With a white dude about how colleges really needed student groups for Middle-class white men because no one understood their struggles (laughs) of like what it's like You're supposed to be going through life on easy mode, but it feels so hard and other people are succeeding more than you And I was like, you know what have that club because no one wants to have that conversation with you
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. They need to talk to each other exclusively.
1: But yeah, I think the twist that Athena is a little bit of a vampire herself and stealing from other people's traumas from her quote-unquote mm. position of privilege. Is also interesting because I think there is this narrative throughout the novel about like what do you owe other people who are voiceless.
0: Right. So after Athena's death, Athena like posthumously gets dragged through Twitter for her previous books that were about Chinese culture when she is a member of the diaspora and that experience is not her experience. And that's like a really fascinating conversation to have because you think like. You see a book about Chinese history, and our, our eyes go directly to the name to see, like, okay, is it a Chinese author? Like, from what perspective is this going to come? And that is a really nuanced conversation about, like, the, who's, whose story can it be? Like, a, a member of the diaspora telling that story is, is co- still coming from a subjective position that is not first person. It's not a primary experience.
1: And how much research or how how much work do you need to do in order to deserve to write that experience? Yeah. Um, like, I think a lot about Pachinko and how that took, like, 10 years of research to write. But again, it's, like, written by a Korean-American author. She's not a Korean person who grew up in Japan. And I think all of that is, like, really messy
0: right another element that added nuance to this is that juniper accuses athena Lou of stealing one of her stories from college her like maybe it was a rape story and athena Lou heard that story took the major plot points of that story and turned it into a fictional short story and uh, like the underlying message that the reader i think is left with here is that all storytelling is in some way stealing and it's like trying to deal with the messy distinctions or like lines that we can draw and say like, okay, here's when it's straight up pilfery and here's when art is taking over and like trying to transform the thing into something bigger.
1: Yeah. Because obviously Athena does this to a lot of people. She does it to her boyfriend. She does it to the Korean guy. Mm -hmm. She sees at the war memorial. There's a question about universality, especially as they're editing um, the last front and There's a lot of work that June and her white lady editor put in to make the story, quote unquote, more universal, which is basically like more acceptable to white audiences or that more approachable by white audiences.
0: Yeah, there's that one scene where the like male gaze and the like white people are okay actually.
1: And the the missionaries were good the whole time. What?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Or at least some of them were, like, hashtag not all missionaries.
1: Hashtag not all missionaries. Hashtag maybe some Tom Hollins can play one of them in the movie version. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was something that was interesting that I was thinking about where she was contrasting it to what Athena wrote, which Athena does not meet the reader where they are. Her, Athena is like, yeah. I'm not going to translate anything. I'm not going to tell you what this is. If you are curious, you can Google it. Also, basically the translation of someone's story by another person, because I was thinking also about then when June reads the short story Athena writes about June's rape, question mark, she says something akin to like, she distilled all of my like, mess, garbage stuff into like, what I was feeling in that moment. And that like, universal feeling of what happened. And in some ways they're both by being able to like translate somebody else's experience without the emotional closeness to it, you're able to reach quote unquote, some sort of universality.
0: Yeah. And that's one element of what I think this book argues for is the searching for that universal quality. And the other thing that I think this book advocates for is that writing fiction is an opportunity to learn. And so like Juniper at her best is trying to teach herself the history really well and at her worst is ignoring it completely and like ignoring the opportunity to work with a sensitivity reader she thinks of it as somebody that's not going to trust her but like if she changed her mindset around it and was like here's an opportunity for me to like learn something yeah so i I don't know there's something about the like reaching for empathy because i know that rf Kuang has talked about how she does not believe that you need to have had the experience to write about the experience but she, I think, is pretty strong on uh, looking at it all as uh, an opportunity for empathy and extending that empathy and learning through fiction.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually had one question for you, James, when I was reading this at the end. Okay. This book is called Yellow Face, but the book is Whiteface. It's an oh, Asian uh, author writing yeah. as a white person. Yeah. And there are parts of the book where, I, where she's just talking about like, oh, how smelly and greasy Chinese, but like all these like things that are like really racist. <laughs> and I was like, this is an Asian person putting this into this white person's mouth. And like these really racist comments, which was like interesting comparing the editing of The Last Front. So as a white person yeah. reading this book, reading basically some white face, how do you feel about it?
0: That's that's fascinating because I, I come from such a position of arrogance that I didn't even like this didn't even occur to me. And I think that <laughs> says everything. I think that says everything.
1: You're just like, oh, yeah, everything is from the white perspective. Like that's not. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. I, I, yeah. This is um before I started the summary, you you all gave me the advice, which probably not going to make the final cut that I should mention that the narrator's white and that that is an important thing to mention. And I just looked it up. It is explicitly said that she's white, about 20% in. But yeah, the, the fact that I did notice that is also telling. It's like the default setting. This is like a Toni Morrison, or an insight that I personally got from Toni Morrison. is probably not uniquely Toni Morrison, but the idea that like when a character enters a story, because novels themselves are such a white thing historically that we just assume that the character is white unless we're told otherwise. And Juniper is like that.
1: Yeah, until all of her um, like editors are like, so there, you're nothing? Are you anything?
0: Yeah, and like the danger of a single story thing where communities represented infrequently or less frequently than white people need to be very conscious of how their race is being represented. And the fact that I didn't, even think about this is like yeah there's bad white people and lots of literature there's good white people and lots of literature this is just like a person who sucks and like i did not even think like <laughs> that this is perhaps somebody from a minority community trying to attach a stigma to whiteness like that didn't even that didn't even hit me
1: well it is this interesting thing like i just kept thinking of this the entire book i was like as i'm imagining being like an asian woman writing out like how, how bad of racial microaggressions can I write from this white person? And it's realistic versus offensive. And I just like had this thought the entire time. So yeah, it's a very different perspective.
0: Right. And Juniper is at her worst when she's refusing the sensitivity reader and when she's eating at Chinese restaurants. And (laughs) it's like comically, it's comically bad where like, I think that that could have possibly been done with more subtlety. And like added a little bit more nuance in there. But then she's just like she becomes a villain in those in those moments.
1: Yeah. OK, so you're not offended as a white man is what you're saying by this white face.
0: I think in particular because it's a white lady. <laughs> like, I don't know. It didn't. I didn't feel attacked. I think it would take quite a bit for me to feel
1: attacked. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Um, But there is something about the whiteness and this comes up a couple of times about like the importance of telling the stories of people who don't have the voice. And like Juniper ends up creating like that friend group that I think of are all white women who all work for the same editor. And they talk about how it's so important for them to raise other people's voices and tell the stories of people who don't get the opportunity. And it's the same thing that happens when um, Juniper goes to the... Asian community of old people yeah. and gives a talk and he's yeah. like thank you for telling the story I couldn't have tell the story my English isn't good But you know you're, you were able to tell the story of my uncle and so thank you
0: Right there's this element of uh, it's patronizing at worst And so even though there might be moments of gratitude like the one with the Thank you for telling the story of my uncle or whatever it's reifying a position of power it's saying like we come from this position of power and therefore we have this duty to support these other people but in doing that unless that's done in a sensitive way that allows people to tell their stories on their own terms and in their own platforms and whatever then it it's still just sort of condescending at its worst it comes from a patronizing position at best it is lifting up the voices but like Not all lifting up voices are positioned as, like, virtue in this book.
1: And I think there's also positions of power within there. My premier example of, like, how do you lift people up in literature is Rick Riordan. Mm -hmm. He originally wrote, wrote a bunch of YA novels that were all white characters, white perspective. He's a white dude. I think he was, like, maybe in Texas. I don't know. He was a teacher. And then I think he moved to the East Coast. But, like, white, white, white. People were like, maybe there could be not white characters. And he's like, great. I'll also write a book about Egyptian mythology (laughs) and have (laughs) half black characters. And everyone was like, ooh, um, okay. I guess they're more diverse. That's cool. Other perspectives. But he finally then got to a level of fame where he could start publishing marginalized writers underneath his brand. And so it was then writers speaking in their own voices that he was able to lift up. But there is that weird in-between step where you don't have enough power, you don't have a brand, you still need money, where you're like, what do I owe this diverse community that I want to like make every person in my YA bubble feel appreciated by? And it's like, well, I need to then include those characters and tell those stories, because that's my livelihood. But also, yeah. I'm not then lifting up those people, because I'm not actually make the space for their stories it's complicated right
0: and that was a very well told story of rick reardon <laughs> uh, but i think that you're right it, like it, it that these things are a process you don't just go straight from like young author trying to make a name for himself and like immediately have the ability to do these things that maybe you even want to do or you aspire to do but like without climbing up the power hierarchy yeah, there's a lot of privilege that you need in order to get to the level where you can do that.
1: Where you can make space. Yeah. You have yeah. to have like a certain amount of like monetary privilege to be like, oh, yeah. I'm going to make space. Yeah.
0: These are the kinds of things that come up when reading this book that is it at its best. And I think there are moments where it like lacks nuance. But this book, when it's at its best, is like inviting us into the complexity around whether or not members of the diaspora are able to tell these kinds of stories. What is the, like, distinction between stealing somebody's story and lifting up their story? What is, I don't know, what does the interaction look like between race and class? Like, these are the moments where it enters literary fiction because it, like, is dealing with this nuance and these gray areas where there are no easy answers. And then there are moments when it, like, slips into a sort of, like, preachy YA where, like, the characters are just, like, very clearly wrong or very clearly virtuous and i'm of two minds i think when i read this one where it just like came close to just being a, a good nuanced novel and then sometimes it's a little on the nose
1: yeah i feel like especially when there there is this modern thing of modern literature where you have to include like twitter sorry x
0: sorry <laughs>
1: <laughs> um i apologize to the world that it is now x um It is this this interesting thing where she has to show what it's like to get canceled in a very modern way of people writing like BuzzFeed listicles and making like YouTube takedowns
0: yeah I don't think this book could have gotten away with not doing it Mm, because mm. the discourse happens on on X I this brings up R.F. Quang generally and why I think she's so impressive is that one she's super young she's like 27 or something and she's published all these books and has had this much success and that she's like a historian at Oxford like she's doing a PhD at Oxford like she's an incredible academic as well and that her previous novel like she has success at Oxford she's made it into Oxford she has success there she's getting a PhD and then she writes Babel which is basically just ripping on the concept of Oxford as this imperialist project that has done a lot of bad things in the world. And she is this wild success in the publishing industry and then she writes this novel that is just ta- just taking the publishing industry to task and like talking about how it's an imperialist project. And uh, I don't know, because it's all evidence against interest. It's all these institutions that give her value and she's questioning whether or not they have the ability to convert that value onto her. And I think that's really fascinating. It makes me like her a lot.
1: Yes. It's like Hamilton-esque to me. Yeah. Both ways that you're taking down the system, but in a way that rich white people, by reading it and enjoying it, can feel like, oh, I'm part of the revolution.
0: Right. This is what it's like to be cynical about the Barbie movie, too where it feels like a political act, even though all you're doing is propping up the same systems. Mm-hmm.
1: It is interesting because Arf Kwong is Athena. She has been selected. like Her voice is the one that will be allowed to represent the Asian Oxford experience to a certain extent, um, and her, her story is the ones that are allowed to be told.
0: Yeah, and even though she's questioning it, there's still something about like decolonization is ultimately an anti-capitalist socialist project. Feminism is a a socialist project. And so when these, like the movie industry or the publishing industry, when they co-opt those movements and like put them in service to selling dolls, there's something that you can like be rightfully cynical about because it's just the culture industry repackaging these socialist anti-capitalist decolonial projects but still within those systems that only exist because of capitalism and, and colonization and on all these other things
1: yeah. it's very cynical and i think the book talks a little bit of how cynical it is because when june decides before her book is published she's like okay i need to like start following all these different twitter accounts that have like blm in the bio yeah, <laughs> yeah. and i yeah. need to like have opinions about the people's republic of china
0: yeah though like profile identities that you can construct a profile identity that then becomes your like I don't want to say aspirational identity but, it, but but because it becomes your public identity it has an impact on what your actual identity is like it actually does shift
1: yeah, yeah. and for some reason the, the things that like most annoyed me about June other than her hating Chinese food <laughs> repeatedly yeah. but she kept on trying to eat it I'm like what are you doing yeah.
0: you don't like it don't you
1: yeah is she kept on being like, well, you know, one way for it to authenticize myself or to do more, I wanted to do more for the Asian community than Athena ever did. So I'm going to become a mentor to like Asian American youth. And there's like all of these things where she's like mentoring Asian American youth throughout it. all these people are just like, but are you Asian? She's like, nope. But you know what? <laughs> Athena was Asian and she didn't give back to community at all. And I'm giving back to your community. Yeah. That part made me deeply uncomfortable
0: yeah it did make me it, it reminds me of a moment that happened on like total request live what? back in like the 90s <laughs> i don't know why this is in my head but it, it lives in my head uh, and i hope i get the details right but I, I think um like odb was on total request live and they do this like call in thing and a caller says like I'm a a single black mother. I want to know what you're doing for the community. Like, how are you going to give back now that you've reached this level of fame? And ODB goes, he points at himself and goes, me? Nothing. (laughs) And and I was just like, really? I don't know why this lives in my head, but there's like, because no no white artist ever got that question, right? And so like, ODB is like, clearly just pissed off that like, there is this expectation on him. Like, where he's like, nothing. Like, I'm just going to, keep doing me like there's something to it where it's like well she should have like she owed it to the community to do these other things and i'm going to be better than her by doing this thing that she should like that that claim that she should have is this like normative claim that is applying some sort of behavior to her because of her ethnicity that like shouldn't happen no i'm on odb side as well like it's a normative thing to, to put that on him. like he does he doesn't need to do anything.
1: I feel the same way about when I saw Tynesssse Coates speak here in San Francisco, and he was publishing a new book about, you know, black experiences in America. And the first question from the audience q and a was, it's currently Indigenous People's Day what are you doing for like the indigenous populations? Why haven't you talked about them today in your discussion? Yeah. The interviewer was Michael Chabon. Ch- Chabon? Yeah, yeah. He then was like, oh, well, that was on me. Like I should have done like a land acknowledgement before this. And then ta Coates was like, yeah, no, obviously white people have fucked over both indigenous people and black people. I am here to talk about the black experience. That is what my book is about. Yeah. <laughs> we should not be pitting marginalized communities against each other when our Enemy is the same.
0: Yeah, and just like the the expectation that that like he should be doing all of this stuff, mm-hmm. it it comes from an ultimately racist position that Athena Liu should have been doing more and was doing less, and that she, as the white savior, is going to fill in the gaps that were left by the people who should have done the work.
1: Yeah, there is this like moralistic thing that is annoying when everyone's like, let's go through Athena's work and figure out all the things that are inaccurate or racist and like like let's cancel her. It's holding an Asian an Asian female author to a higher regard. Like who's going through like Outlander and trying to cancel based on historical yeah. inaccuracies?
0: Right. That they're misrepresenting medieval Scotland or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Historical fiction exists as a genre and it's been okay.
1: Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about that's a recurring theme is ghosts.
0: Mm. So the reason why ghosts even pop up in this novel is because she starts to get freaked out that somebody knows her secret. And the only person that could have known her secret is Athena. So she starts to question whether or not she actually saw Athena die or if Athena could have possibly come back as a ghost who haunts her on Twitter. And I feel like the way that it functions, I mean, I haven't thought a lot about this, but uh, just to say something anyway. Yeah,
1: please. (laughs) I love it
0: the way that it functions in the story is as her conscience that the ghost appears as her conscience and like is the thing that's pushing her towards doing the right thing
1: yeah very telltale heart
0: yeah do you have further insights
1: well i think what's interesting before the whole like ghost telltale heart thing they say that athena's first book that she wrote was about i think it's a chinese woman who can communicate with the ghosts of her ancestors and she can embody them. Mm-hmm. Juniper also, again, like, has this interest in fantasy. And when she's coming up with, like, all these different things of, like, what she could be writing about, ghosts is part of that. Or, like, what a ghost is, is you paying for, to a certain extent, like, the sins of the past coming to fruition in the present. Mm. Like, what is a ghost? In this case, it's, like, whatever happened before having its reckoning in the present.
0: Yeah, no, that's a much better answer than just a simple, it's your conscience that it's like an actual, the past is coming, the, the, the comeuppance um, needs to be worked through, right? Like, yeah, in Hamlet, the question is basically when the ghost appears, is there purgatory? So is is the ghost an actual representation of his father or is it the devil trying to implant him with some ideas to get him to do something that's evil? Like, if you believe in purgatory, then it, it has the potential to be the father that is doing the thing. So then revenge would be virtuous because it's coming from this person who's trying to work out some sins in the underworld. So this is essentially that same thing where, I mean, in this case, it's only one thing. It's, it's yeah, it's the sins of the past trying to work themselves out in the present, and she's just trying to work it out. I think that maybe she's trying to read it as something different than that, but, like, she's trying to read it as an unjust retribution on her or like something that is terrorizing her undeservedly. So that would be like the devil, just like visiting Hamlet and trying to get him to do bad things. She feels tormented unjustly, but actually this is a standard purgatory ghost trying to work out the sins of the past in the present and get her to reconcile her actions with her like view of herself as a virtuous person.
1: Yeah. And there's one point where she talks about uh, some talk that, that she went to or something where they're like, the question is, what do you owe the dead? And the philosopher, whoever she talked to was like, you owe the dead nothing. If they like left all of their money to their children and you're, like society's like, no, we should give it to someone else. You should just take that money and not give it to their children. And so there is this thing of like, are you able to just like cut it off and like move forward without having to rework things out? Are we actually ever obligated to work through the past or can we just ignore all of what the previous generations are saying, which I think then dovetails nicely into the, we should all be able to write any story because the only thing you have in common at that point in the current day is your DNA.
0: Yeah. Do you think this book takes a position on that?
1: On should anyone be able to write any story?
0: And what we owe the past?
1: I think that no matter what, there's going to be intergenerational trauma to a certain extent. Like, I think that June even shows it where, like, there's clearly a lot of processing she has to do with her own father's death and the fact that her mom and sister don't understand her and aren't supportive of her, like, ambitions. Because of that intergenerationalness, you can never really cut off anything. It'll always come back to roost. And I think that the very fact that June, quote unquote, gets her comeuppance is a sign that the past will always come back. And I think it's interesting. Well, she writes her first book that gets published. Nobody reads it. Then she publishes Athena's book that is like the co-written book of them together that she stole. Then she takes the first page of Athena's short story and then writes another book. And then she's like, I'll write a book to get myself out of the situation now that everyone has canceled me. And her first attempt is I'm basically going to blank space it to quote the Taylor <laughs> Swift. Like I'm, I'm going to like make a version where I'm a villain and it's like, a de- yeah. I'm a delicious villain. Like I'm yeah. so conniving it's almost like you like me more because you hate me
0: yeah it's the oj simpson if i did it
1: if if i did it (laughs) (laughs) oh my god james it's literally what i wrote in my notes is Uh, i was like oh she's going for the blank space way out slash oj nice (laughs) we're on the same page yeah and then finally after she gets exposed by the assistant who got her fired who then pretends to be athena on athena's instagram and is the ghost she decides instead what she's going to do is a redemptive novel for herself being like this whole thing was a hoax in order to expose the entire literary world and what a mess it is and i'm going to be the hero which also builds upon the fact that her book after she got canceled started selling even more because conservatives wanted to like be like fuck you libs we're gonna read this white author appropriating asian people
0: right which is basically a mirror of what happened with that one book that was like american dirt that is what happened there
1: and so I think there is this journey that Juniper goes on of, like, her almost processing her own misdeed, right? Where it's like, I'll own it, mm-hmm. like, and I'll, I'll be the villain. And she's like, no, I want to be seen as the hero.
0: Yeah. And then in writing, what is this book? Like, what this book is is supposed to be within the logic of the narrative? It doesn't do that. <laughs> like, she can't end up being the hero.
1: But she believes herself to be the hero in the end.
0: Yes. She, I believe that she believes that she's the hero, but... Having read this book, it's so very <laughs> clear that she is not the hero.
1: Um,
0: I mean, R.F. Quang writes mostly historical fiction, like *Babel* was historical fiction from the 1830s. I've never read the *Poppy Wars* books, but I, I imagine that they're about the the Opium Wars, given given that makes the names. And they're also they're not uh, historical fiction realism there there's always a fantasy element to them so I wonder how that plays into the point you were making about um, what we owe to the past and what the take of this particular novel is on what we owe to the past because in the past in her literary past life every time she's written historical fiction it's like very clearly fiction because there are fantasy elements to it like there are things that you know don't exist. So then, like, it's maybe getting at the, like, what is the reality that is, like, the fiction, like, the poetic reality. Like, when Hilary Mantel writes a history, or, like, those those novels, the I. Claudius novels written by that translator, when they write history books, it's essentially, like, it's a historical fiction, but it's essentially history. It's just, like, being told in a narrative way from a first-person narrator or whatever. And I feel like what she does is very different. So I wonder if she has a philosophic position on the writing of historical fiction that we can't actually know the past. And so to produce a work of fiction that seems like it's truth in the way that Hilary Mantel would do it, that there's like a central impossibility there. And so she's trying to get at something different and adding a fantasy level on top.
1: Yeah. Like it's it's, whatever you're writing anyways is fantasy. It's historical fantasy. And so
0: she's just like upfront about that by adding in a magic system. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of good philosophy of art that could come from this, Um, just like about who is responsible for a single creation, because nobody is actually like, even though she talked about the loneliness of being a writer, like there's a story of F. Scott Fitzgerald always carrying around a notebook with him and taking down words that his friends would say, like anything he thought is like particularly well said or clever. Um, and he famously stole that line about uh, the best thing a woman can be in this world is a fool from his from his wife, Zelda. But of course, writers are going to be using things from their life and like things that they've heard. Like it would be, it just feels like an impossible task not to do that. And so I like literature. And so there's always going to be this level of of pilfering from the world around you and from friends and things you heard or saw. And then it's the like compiling of that that is the artwork Um, but it does make authorship a messy thing and I think that's maybe part of the criticism of this book and publishing industry is that it always wants to put the one name on there and and sell that but like this is a collaborative work and maybe things should be more recognized as such so I feel like there's also some good art theory discussions to have with it but yeah okay let's move on to uh, a paper two question uh, to end our discussion on Yellowface, so in this part I bring in a question from an IB exam um, in literature, and then we discuss how we would write an essay about that question. But today, because we've gone through a lot of the ones on my on my master list, I asked ChatGPT to come up with a new one for me, and I needed to change it a bit. But it is discuss the portrayal of ambition in the text how do different characters ambitions reflect their values and how do those values contribute to larger themes in the text? So it has two parts to the question. We've got the, um, what is the portrayal of ambition? Like is ambition seen as a positive or negative or, you know, whatever. Um, and then also how do the ambitions reflect values and contribute to larger themes in the text? So any hot takes,
1: I don't know if any of the takes are hot. I think that what I... I think what this question brings to to mind to me is, even by the end of the novel, I didn't have a good grasp on Athena and her motivations. Like, when I first see this question, I'm, like, raring of the bit to talk about June's ambition. How all throughout the novel, she mostly talks about how writing is like this cathartic experience for her. It's better than sex. She's just like, this is what I meant to do in the world. And then ultimately she has this breakdown at the end and she's like, actually, I just don't want to be forgotten, which speaks of course to the fact that she doesn't feel seen by her mother and sister that she lost her father and that she always felt smaller than like Athena in college. And just generally like she feels like she's been overshadowed her entire life. And she wants to uh, leave a legacy to a certain extent, but a personal legacy Versus like elevating the stories of other people and being like, I want their legacy to be left. I want my legacy to be left. And that's like another reason that she wants to erase Athena as a a co-author. She doesn't want her legacy to be overshadowed.
0: Right. That's really interesting with what we talked about earlier about collaboration and how all works of art are in some ways a collaboration and like a synthesis of the world that the artist lives in. Um, And that's pulling from a lot of sources. But there's ultimately this like, this is the name that won't be forgotten. I also watched a video essay recently by CJ the X. And at the end of it, he's interviewing a bunch of other video essayists. And his questions are like, why do you do what you do? Like, why do you write the content that that you're writing? And all of them have uh, an answer that is really interesting that, you know, depending on the person will say like, because people weren't talking about this kind of media and I wanted to add a voice that like took it seriously when I felt like it should have been taken seriously. And so I write this thing to like uplift black cinema or whatever the, the topic might be. And then when they finish their speech about that, he goes, okay, but why do you really do mm-hmm. what you do? And all of them <laughs> immediately said the same thing. And this that thing is, I just want people to think I'm smart. Like, <laughs> And that's really it. It's always down to, like, why do you do this thing that you do? Like, why do we make this podcast? Oh, to, like, keep up our friendship. And uh, really, it's because I want people to think I'm smart. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) But, yeah, I think that's, that's like, exactly right with Juniper. It's, like, she doesn't want to be forgotten. She, like, wants uh, her name to persist. She wants people to associate good things with her name. And for that to be passed down she wants to be famous she wants people to think that she's smart and worth it and worthy of attention um because she didn't get a lot of attention from her family or i mean if we're doing like a freudian thing it's because she linear causality she didn't get attention from her mom so she wants it from the whole world
1: yeah which also speaks to why when her agent brings her like hey do you want to write basically like ip where it's like it's it's whatever they do with like Pretty Little Liars right. and Sweet yeah. Valley High where it's like, you'll write this stuff, but you don't own it.
0: Yeah. She's like, absolutely yeah.
1: not. Like I, uh, my ego is too big for this. Yeah.
0: Right. So I think Juniper is, it's obviously a really interesting character with this because also the way that this impacts her values, like success in the publishing industry for her is indistinguishable from success. If she, actually thinks that writing is cathartic and that it's this like better than sex experience then she shouldn't actually need these metrics of success that she is so wedded to like the value would be intrinsic to the process and she's confusing the metrics for success like how many books sold what the bonus is whatever with what should for her actually be like individual success like am I proud of this thing did I write something that felt good did I tell the story I wanted to tell and you know, I guess there is no success for an artist inside capitalism. <laughs> it is not something that she's able to divorce. And so her values are linked with all these metrics for success that the publishing industry tells her are valuable rather than how she intrinsically feels value is produced.
1: Right. She comes to the conclusion at the end right, where she gets that like cask of champagne or whatever for her, her for the last front. And she's like, when mm-hmm. I, my debut happened, it was basically any other day in my life. Yeah. No one bought it. No one sent me anything. And I think that she believes that, like, the publishing industry decides who's going to be successful. And she would rather chase that high than, like, what is, quote unquote, good writing.
0: Right. I think that's exactly right. And she's jealous, I think, in in a lot of ways of Athena, who seems like Athena didn't care about writing as much as she cares and yet got all the signifiers of success so let's return to Athena then, because you could probably write a whole essay just focusing on Juniper. You just take the values that she had and and chased talk about her parents, like there's plenty in there to build three paragraphs off of. But is it is it possible even to like does Athena only serve in this particular way? Does Athena only serve as like a foil? Like just something to be compared to? Like or is there can we understand Athena's values? what her ambitions were, because she did a lot of work to do this thing. Like there was a lot of research. She was trying to do something literary here.
1: We do meet her mom on a couple of occasions because it all goes Freudian. We all have to go again. We can't actually like undo the ghosts of the past. Her mom originally in wanting to donate Athena's journals to Yale and then gets convinced by Juniper not to. She feels like she potentially like hurt her daughter by telling the realities of what their life was like before they had her and like their grandparents stories and things like that. And feels uncomfortable that like Athena is telling those stories now for a very large wide public audience and doesn't want those stories to be told like half-assedly through her notebooks or expose even more things and probably almost a sensitivity. I feel like there was something about like the mother-daughter relationship that almost kept a little bit of a, a secret. We don't know what her relationship was with her daughter to a certain extent, but it wasn't like a, a simple relationship. So I think we have some signal in there. And then we just have a signal that she like is constantly mining other people's stories, whether it's like junipers or her boyfriends or Korean war vets, like just everyone. There's one quote that I like from the book is what she talks about like, Working with her editor, she's like, whatever my work and my, like, book jacket v- version of me, like, that's not me. She calls it Athena Del Rey.
0: <laughs> that's really good.
1: <laughs> which, as we all know, is a reference to Lana Del Rey, which is not her real name. Right. And Lana Del Rey is notorious for, like, putting on this persona of, yeah. like, "Make America great again, backwards, 50s lady, what it is to be a lady and a broken bird lady. So it's, like, this idea that, like, we know that Athena is constructing herself. I I think it's like we don't know what is her. Because all the things that we see are the things that she's stolen from other people to construct her Athena Del Rey. And the only insight we get into who she might be is, Juniper mentions sometimes when Athena gets super drunk, she just gets super vulnerable about, like, am I any good? And it's like, read my book. Do you think it's good?
0: That's interesting. Like, Athena having achieved all of the traditional signifiers of success and like having all the metrics that she actually is returning to the to the original like here are other people who do my craft do they think it's good like do they think I'm smart whereas Juniper is so focused on the external metrics of success Athena perhaps because she's already achieved them doesn't concern herself with them and reverts back to the the simple like do people like my stuff Did I write a good story?
1: Right. Do people think I'm smart? I wrote it on a typewriter. Don't you think I'm smart?
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. This thing I've been working on by myself in secret. Like, and then there's a vulnerability that comes with sharing it and then like just wanting people to like her, but not necessarily focused on the, did I get a big bonus? Did I get the Netflix deal? Did I get the number of pre-orders? Right. OK, yeah. so I think that there's enough here to actually write a paragraph about Athena uh, and ambition and like a way for her to divorce her artistic product from her vulnerable human self and like just wanting acceptance from people who she respects in some way. Like, I think you could build a good parody paragraph about that.
1: Yeah. The other thing I'm coming around to with ambition is ambition. It, it's not a solitary act. Yeah. Ambition doesn't work if you're not in communion with other people.
0: Right. That's a solid thesis statement.
1: This talks a lot about the loneliness (laughs) of writing, but it's like, ultimately, if you have goals, you have to put things into the world. Right. And then whatever you view that success is and the value. Whatever
0: those standards are of that community, you're trying to match and be successful within those standards that are set by the community that it's not something that can be constructed on an individual level. Mm -hmm. All right. Great job. We would write a great essay.
1: We would write a great Um, essay. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think to your point, we've talked a lot about a very intense novel that had a lot to say. And maybe we need like a little bit of a break. We've earned it.
0: We've done some lit fiction, or at least like borderline literary fiction for our last few with romantic comedy. Yeah.
1: And as June said, like Athena was making people work for it. What if we just don't work for our reading and we just yeah. enjoy it.
0: I feel like we're we're dissing on what our next choice is before we no, read it. But like not. I am genuinely looking forward to this and we are going to find wisdom in it and it's going to be great. Yes. Um do you want to say what we're going to read next?
1: So I'm really excited. We're reading the brand new Alexis Hall book called 10 Things That Never Happened. It's got amnesia. It's got hot guys falling in love with each other. There's really nothing it doesn't have.
0: Uh, and the cool thing about this one is that time of recording, it's not even released yet. We sort of trust in the Alexis Hall magic and that it's going to be a fun ride.
1: Ready for the vibes.
0: Yeah. All right, Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us at Twitter uh, or X at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading 10 Things Never Happened by Alexis Hall.
1: See you then. See you then. And I'm Melissa Hansen, who would be probably making you the pancakes that suck? No, I'm going to think a better one. Let me... (laughs)